Welcome back, everyone, to the Homeric Epic Podcast. I'm glad you've chosen to join me for our third episode, which will cover Book 2 of the Iliad. I also hope you enjoy long lists full of names and places, because this book is full of them. Last episode, we covered Book 1 of the Iliad. The foundation for the story was laid, tensions were raised, and the will of Zeus is moving towards its end. But first, let me quickly recap the events of Book 1. We opened our story with the prome, and the very first word of the prome was rage. After much foreshadowing, Ulysses arrived to ransom his daughter from Agamemnon, who harshly refuses him. Cut to several days of plague and pestilence later, Achilles calls an assembly to divine the cause of the misfortune. The seer Calchas lays the blame undoubtedly on the refusal of Agamemnon to ransom Chryseis to her father. Agamemnon, embarrassed that he should be forced to give up his prize, demands recompense from his fellow Achaeans. Achilles speaks up against this demand, and the two butt heads. Achilles, after nearly killing Agamemnon, is convinced by the goddess Athena to stay his anger, and retreats from the fighting to show the Achaeans what they are missing out on. Agamemnon sends heralds to fetch Perseus from Achilles, and Achilles prays to his divine mother Thetis for help. He asks her to gain Zeus's favor for him since he has been dishonored. Thetis assents, and as Zeus owes her a favor, she heads off to Olympus to ask the king of the gods. Arriving there, she beseeches the thunder god who agrees to her plea. As Thetis departs, Hera has an earful ready for Zeus, and he threatens to throw her off the mountain. With the divine order on the brink of collapse, people Hephaestus asks his mother to be reasonable. In doing so, the tension is dissolved into harmless laughter by the bustling about of lame Hephaestus. And we are reminded of the cruel lot of mortals within the story. This denouement has us, the reader, wondering what will happen now. Excellent. We're all experts on book one now, I assume. So let me quickly preface the events of book two. I do encourage you to follow along with the story as you listen, as this will ensure the details of the text are fresh in your mind. There are always so many tidbits in the Iliad to look out for, so let's try and find as many as we can. Book 2 begins with the worlds of both gods and men asleep, and it is the perfect time for ruinous prophetic dreams. Zeus cleverly thinks up a way to fulfill his promise to Thetis and honor Achilles. Have Agamemnon try to storm the walls of Troy tomorrow. He sends Dream, literally the personified deity of dreams, to appear to Agamemnon, and say that the will of the gods is made up, he will storm Troy tomorrow. Dream appears to Agamemnon in the form of Nestor to report this. Agamemnon, supposing he will take Troy today, calls a council and explains his dream. He adds at the end that he will test the troops with a speech ordering them to return home, and that the other Achaeans leaders check them with their words. Nestor replies, stating that if anybody else had such a dream, they would have thought it was a delusion. They then call the armor together for assembly. Agamemnon addresses them, describing to them the near exact opposite of what was in his dream. He then orders them to return home, and the men rush for the ships. Hera and Athena, the two gods spurned by Paris, wish not for the Achaeans to return home, and so Athena descends to earth and orders Odysseus to check the departure of the Achaeans. Odysseus, grabbing the scepter from Agamemnon, begins to rebuke the fleeing soldiers. Thersites, a colorfully described character, hurls abuse at Agamemnon and is partially beaten down by Odysseus. With the crowd silenced, Odysseus addresses them, hearkening back to when they left for Troy 
and the prophecy that Calchas made then. This raises their spirits, and next Nestor addresses them, and finally Agamemnon again. The army is properly roused now, and with a quick sacrifice to the gods, ready for war. We have some great similes here, right before we arrive at the lengthy catalogue of ships. After a quick tour of mythological ancient Greece, Iris, messenger of the gods, takes us to hallowed Troy for the first time, where we are treated to a tour of the Trojan forces in a similar manner to the Greeks. Now, before we begin with the detailed stuff, I'll admit it, this is not the most exciting book of the Iliad. Not by a long shot. And once we read book three, we may ask ourselves, what's the point of book two? Would the story be any different without it? The simple answer is no, the plot would be the exact same. But seeing as we are at the beginning of the tale, the poet needs to explain his setting. Remember that an audience is meant to hear this story, and while they likely did know the context of the scene as it was unfolding, the poet still needs to tell it. But while normal written stories would launch into exposition about the setting delivered by the narrator, during a spoken story, this would be confusing as the audience can't go back and reread any details. The poet has a unique problem. How does he explain the past while still moving the plot forward in the present? Thus, the purpose of Book 2 is largely expository. At no point does Homer ever stop telling his tale. It always moves forward. Critics of the Homeric poems, who sought to disentangle the original Homeric lines from other later contributors, are quick to question the purpose of Agamemnon's motive in this passage. The purpose of the dream is clear enough. Zeus wishes to bring the armies together to fulfill his promise to Thetis. We can see why the episode is necessary for expositional purposes, but Agamemnon's motive for testing them is still unclear. Why would he test the army at all? A prophetic dream from Zeus promising victory would surely be a great rallying cry for the Achaeans. As strange as it appears, we are able to discern Agamemnon's motive. At this junction of having Achilles leave, it is natural for him to desire to take Troy without him. But obviously, this is a huge risk. And should he call for the army to march out and fight, and they begin to lose, which is of course exactly what happens, then the blame would solely rest with him. He would also be falling directly into Achilles' plan. And this obviously cannot be for someone such as Agamemnon, and plainly shows us what kind of person he is. This is the man Achilles has to deal with. So Agamemnon then decides that he will tell the troops to return home, not because he expects them to want to stay, but because he has ordered the other generals to go against his verdict and make the army stay and fight. In his ideal scenario, he dramatically tells the army they're leaving, and the other generals rouse the crowd and get them chanting, No way! Let's take Troy today! This would absolve him of the potential outcome of failure, and grant him the glory promised by Zeus in his dream should they succeed. Such a, let's face it, dumbass plan feels extremely lifelike though, doesn't it? This example of the inept and out-of-touch leader strikes a chord that rings across thousands of years of history. But besides the mechanistic interpretations of Agamemnon's deceptions, let's look at the text in detail. Dream appears to Agamemnon in the guise of Nestor, whom Agamemnon trusts dearly for his wisdom. The logic here is obvious, and Nestor is the only one to speak up in favor of the plan. He ironically proclaims 
that if anybody else had such a dream, they would deem it a delusion and not believe it. But because it was Agamemnon who dreamt it, it must be true. The Greek word which we translate as delusion is ate, and it is an important concept for the heroes of the Iliad. Ate is personified as a spirit that holds sway over mortals, causing them to act or do things that they will later regret. It is often preceded by hubris, of which we know Agamemnon is famous for. After the dream, Agamemnon calls the assembly where Nestor reaffirms his plan, and they set out to address the army. Agamemnon begins describing the promise Zeus made for him, that he should not return home without bringing down the walls of Troy. Quite clearly, this has not happened yet. He then expands on the city-destroying nature of Zeus, and how he must have tricked him into staying and fighting at Troy all this time. From this, one might assume that Zeus is against them. He then elaborates on how much they outnumber the Trojans, greater than ten to one. Yet the Trojans possess many, many allies, seemingly nullifying this advantage. He then caps off his rousing speech by mentioning the long duration of the war, nine years so far, and how their wives and children are at home waiting for their return. Not the most rousing speech for the troops, eh? Effectively, he says, Zeus is probably not on our side anymore, our numerical advantages are for naught, and I bet our wives and children are all waiting for us, so let's get out of here. This vivid imagery hits home, and acts completely antithetically to Agamemnon's intended purpose, and the army makes a mad dash for the ships. When the Achaean leaders ultimately fail to check the army on all sides, the gods must intervene, and Athena is sent to rouse Odysseus. It's interesting how the first thing Odysseus does is grab the scepter from Agamemnon. This scepter, in the Greek Sceptron, was given to Agamemnon's father Thyestes, who received it from his father Atreus, the one who began the cursed house of Atreus, of which Agamemnon is a member of, and Atreus received it from Pelops, who the region in Greece known as the Peloponnese is named after. Pelops, beloved of the gods, received it from Hermes, who received it from Zeus, who was in turn given it, who was given it by Hephaestus, who made it. So not only is the scepter a symbol of rule handed down from father to son, it jumped the gap between gods and men and further reaffirms Agamemnon's place as a divinely chosen leader. This particular piece of Geras imparts great teamae upon Agamemnon. But he doesn't seem to be using it for its intended purposes. When Odysseus wields it, he uses it to tactfully convince his equals, those other kings who are noble, or he uses it to beat sense into his lessers and re-establish the pecking order. The phrases he uses for each showcase the social hierarchy of the Homeric world. He speaks to other leaders using his tact and wile, explaining logically to them why they should stay and hear Agamemnon out. But the average soldier is beneath him, and must be frightened in submission and reminded that there should be only one divinely appointed ruler. This army is clearly an aristocracy. The prime example of this social hierarchy is Thersites, who is just a fantastically described character. Caroline Alexander's translation paints him thus, quote, Thersites alone still jabbered his unbridled speech, who knew in his mind many incoherent things to say, vain, indecent, who antagonized kings, but which seemed to him to be amusing to the Argive men. The most repellent man to come beneath the walls of Ilion, he was a dragger of feet, lame in one leg. His stumped-over shoulders came together at his chest, 
Above them his head was misshapen to a point, and meager stubble sprouted on it. Above all, he was detested by Achilles and Odysseus. End quote. In Greek mythology, and especially Homer, inward virtue is often expressed as outward appearance in people. Heroes are handsome, and thus they are noble and display noble traits. The same holds in reverse. Anthersites is the prime example of ugly on the inside and out. He is meant to antithesize the noble Homeric kings by being both physically repulsive and thus useless in war, and not possessing the rhetorical skill and berating his superiors, thus lacking mental skill and an understanding of the social order. A neat fact about Thersites is that in the next book in the epic cycle, the Ethiopus, Achilles actually murders him for poking fun at his love of the Amazonian queen Penthesilea, whom Achilles killed in combat. Achilles must leave the fighting to be cleansed of his murder, and while he's away, his friend Antilochus is killed. The reason he has to leave and be cleansed for killing Thersites and not be cleansed for the killing of literally scores of other people is because he killed both an ally and because it occurred outside of the fighting. Thus, he incurred what the Greeks called miasma. Both the mythological and the historical Greeks took miasma, or pollution, very seriously. Committing murder or other heinous acts would cause you to become polluted, and this pollution could spread to those around you like a disease. The prime example of this is Agamemnon's refusal of the ransom of Chryseis in Book 1. The miasma Agamemnon brought on himself for this unjust action caused a plague that spread to the entire army, and a seer was needed to divine the root cause of this miasma. Anyways, back to Book 2. Thersites' declamation towards Agamemnon sounds greatly like the grievances laid upon him by Achilles. The main points put forward by Thersites are this. Agamemnon, you are rich, and the Achaeans gave you this wealth. Are you lacking enough that you would march the men into battle? We should leave to demonstrate how much you need us. You can clearly see how this is very close to what Achilles said to Agamemnon in Book 1. The only difference is that when it's said by Thersites to his superior, he's talking out of place and not to an equal. Odysseus reminds him of this, and the harsh beatdown of Thersites seems to break the retreat of the Achaean soldiers to the ship. They all pause to listen to Odysseus' speech as he is backed by Athena. Odysseus delivers the speech that should have been delivered by Agamemnon, reminding the troops of the prophecy they witnessed nine years ago, the serpent eating the eight baby swallows, finally the mother, and then turning to stone, symbolizing the nine years before they will take Troy in the tenth. But this scene here is working double duty, as functionally it fits perfectly within this place in the story, serving to rouse the men to battle. But it is also meant to mirror the beginning of the Trojan War. In the beginning of the epic cycle, the Achaean forces met at Aulis, which is on the east coast of Greece in the region of Boeotia, before they set off to Troy. This reminder of the prophecy and the subsequent listing of the forces in the catalogue of ships is meant to parallel the beginning of the war, and is just one of the many ways in which the poet recounts the entire tale of the Ten-Year War during a short span of time in the Iliad. Nestor interjects after Odysseus, denouncing the men for their cowardice, and then suggests to Agamemnon to separate the men into tribe and then clan for the purpose of arranging the army. This seems to suggest that normally the army does not organize itself in this manner, which seems strange considering how the fighting in the Iliad actually plays out, as the warriors are always fighting next to their friends, even on the Trojan side. You'd think they'd always want to do that. But Nestor does provide a reason for this, 
As he says, this way, Agamemnon will be able to tell if a certain division of men is responsible for his failure to take the city because of their cowardice, or if the god's will is truly against them taking the city. This is actually pretty clever by Nestor, and I believe this speech and the one Odysseus just said are the things that Agamemnon actually should have said, were he as wise and tactful as these two. Nestor's speech also perfectly serves up the next section of the book, the catalogue of ships, as the natural next step in the story. But before jumping into the catalogue of ships, Homer builds the tension a bit and dazzles us with no less than six consecutive similes. My favorite among them, quote, as when obliterating fire rages through an immense forest on the mountain height, and from afar the flare shows forth, so the gleam from the sublime bronze of marching men glinting through the clear sky reached heaven. End quote. The six similes here are ordered from largest scope to smallest, as if a camera shooting the scene is narrowing its field of view. We start with a raging fire on a mountain. Then we compare the Achaeans to a flock of birds, all different types, as they settle down into order. Next, they are as numerous as leaves and flowers. Lastly, as a swarm of incessant flies buzzing about a pail of milk. The poet then points out the generals who order the men like goat herders. At the head of it all, the lord of men, Agamemnon. These similes showcase the army's immense size as it buzzes and crackles to life, and gradually takes us down to the minute details. The colors of the fire are the colors of the glinting bronze. Birds exult in their wings as the men exult in their arms, and they goad each other on like a tremendous flock. The comparison of the ranks of men to leaves is a common theme throughout the poem. Both live and die with the seasons, growing in the spring of youth and dying in the winter of old age. The flies swarm about the pail of milk as the men swarm about Troy, eager to plunder it. Finally, they are set in their place, ordered rank and file by the generals. I want to pause here and just say it outright. This here, folks, is the epic style. Everything is heightened, elevated. There is no action that is beneath extensive description. The scale is immense and grand. And with this, we are ready for our catalog. The Neon Catalogos, or Catalog of Ships, is a strange part of the Iliad, and I feel a stumbling block to those approaching the story for the first time. Much like the beginning of the poem, the poet invokes the muse here to aid him in his feat of memorization and recitation. The idea of the poem as a performance is a helpful concept for rationalizing the presence of the catalogue of ships. For a poet performing live, listening to such a large number of locations and names would be a very impressive feat of memory, and the appeal to divine aid is meant to tee up his performance. One can also imagine that the poet performs this section as a means of shouting out a specific city, making sure to include the one he is currently performing in. If you were from Sparta, you would obviously want to hear Menelaus listed among the leaders, and if you're from Rhodes, you'd want to hear about Heracles' son Telepolemus and his Rhodian contingent. These shoutouts would serve to reinforce these people's mythological heritage, as they can claim descent from the heroes of the Trojan War based on their city's presence in the catalogue of ships. But of course, if this theory of shouting out places is to have any merit, then the places listed in the catalogue should have actually existed, right? How much historical water does the catalogue actually hold? 
Actually, a great many of the cities listed in the catalogue were active in Bronze Age Greece, when the Iliad is thought to have taken shape. So the catalogue certainly contains some historical truth, the degree to which will always be under debate, and that's fine. But like I said before, Homer doesn't just include things for no reason. There are significant artistic and literary purposes to the catalogue, especially within the order of the names and locations. In the catalogue, there are three main sections that represent distinct regions of ancient Greece. Boeotia, the area around Mycenae, and the Peloponnese. We start in Boeotia, possibly because the city of Aulis in Boeotia served as the launching point for the entire expedition to Troy, and this catalogue is meant to represent the beginning of the war. There are other clues in the catalogue structure that corroborate this. It has also been suggested that Boeotia had a long tradition of catalogue poetry, of which this catalogue is hearkening back to, and which an ancient audience would have been familiar with. In any case, Homer begins with a roundabout description of the towns in Boeotia, and I really mean roundabout. The route he describes is not the shortest distance between them, and he frequently zigzags across the Boeotian plain in a seemingly random pattern. When all the Boeotian cities are plotted on a map, though, a curious pattern arises. All the cities are on the circumference of a circle, with the famous city of Thebes at its center. Thebes is quite an important city in Greek mythology, as the birthplace of both Heracles and Dionysus, and the city is steeped in myth. It even had its own epic cycle written about it called the Thibiad, which has not survived to us, unfortunately, but of which we know much about from later sources. There are a few theories as to why Thebes does not play a more prominent role in the Iliad, one being that in the timeline of Greek mythology, it had just been destroyed by the Epigoni, the offspring of the seven against Thebes, of which the hero Diomedes was a part of, and so it was in no position to send a contingent to Troy. But another more complex theory is that Homer wanted to supplant the Thibiad myth with his own story, making it the de facto epic tale for all of Greece. And so he deliberately left out Thebes as a city as a slight towards the competing tale. One tantalizing tidbit is that this section of the catalogue is governed by seven different verbs, one for each gate of the famous seven-gated city of Thebes. It's an interesting theory, and one could imagine a Homer intentionally adding these details to promote his epic war story over the existing Theban story, but like so many things with Homer, it is one of many, many theories. After Boeotia, we move southwards and describe Athens, another city with a rich mythological tradition. The most interesting part of this section is what follows directly after the mention of Athens. Quote, From Salamis, Aias led twelve ships and arrayed them where the ranks of Athenians were stationed. End quote. This reads just like many other passages in the catalogue, but this statement right here was highly controversial in ancient Greece. Around 600 BCE, Athens and Megara were engaged in a war over the ownership of the island of Salamis. The dispute eventually went to arbitration, with the Spartans presiding. The story goes that the Athenian lawgiver Solon inserted this line into the catalogue of ships to claim historical precedent for Athens' control of the island. Megara is also recorded as using Homer to justify their ownership of Salamis, as they claim all of the towns that Aias led were Megarian lands, and thus they had a stronger claim. Now whether or not these are true, 
As the ancient world has a habit of mythologizing its historical characters, I find it fascinating that Homer has directly influenced the course of history like this. And this is the same Homer we can read today. The next section of Greece we visit is in the Peloponnese, in the great cities of Argos, Mycenae, Sparta, and Pylos, all cities led by very important characters in the story. Throughout this section, Homer begins to sprinkle some fascinating mythological references. When describing Lacedaemon, another name for Sparta, Homer reminds us of beautiful Helen, the cause of the entire war. When describing Pylos, Old Nestor's kingdom, Homer mentioned the muses and the oral performing poets like himself, a nod to his own craft. Moving north, we encounter Odysseus's domain of Ithaca and the Aetolians on mainland Greece. Aetolia is where the hero Meleager is from, who is part of an earlier myth about the Caledonian boar hunt. Mention of his name is important foreshadowing to later in the story where the myth of Meleager will figure prominently in Book Nine's embassy to Achilles. The version of the myth of Meleager as recounted in the Iliad serves as a behavioral model for Achilles and mirrors his circumstance quite closely. This obviously leads to disaster, as we shall see later, and I won't recount that myth for you right now, because we'll dwell on it extensively when we come to Book Nine. Just know that it is intentionally brought up here to prime us and connect it to its later telling in the story. After mainland Greece, we whisk across the sea straight to Crete. Crete is the largest of the Greek islands, and in mythology where Zeus was reared as a baby. It is a long mythological tradition, off which the Iliad and the Odyssey piggyback, and was also an important area historically, with a large palace economy present there during the Greek Dark Ages. Continuing with our theme of islands, we next visit Rhodes, another large island in the eastern Mediterranean. Telepolemus, son of the hero Heracles, leads the Rhodian contingent. We are told his backstory about how he came to Rhodes from mainland Greece before he launched off to Troy. Mentioning that he is a son of Heracles is highly relevant, since Heracles himself sacked Troy a generation before the Trojan War. In fact, Priam is only alive because his sister Hesione purchased his life from Heracles with a golden veil, and Heracles put him on the throne a generation earlier. Priam's name was originally Podarches, but was changed to Priam, which is related to the ancient Greek word to buy, because he was ransomed. Thus, Telepolemus sailing to Troy is one of many examples of the son imitating the father in their endeavor to sack Troy throughout the epic. Next, we hear about Nereus. The paragraph that talks about him mentions his name as the first word for three consecutive lines, talking about where he comes from, who his parents are, and how he is the most beautiful Achaean besides Achilles. But then Homer just cuts him down, stating that he was weak and few men followed with him. That's a bit confusing, eh? Venerius is an example of the beautiful but pathetic character archetype that we see in the Iliad. Eris is the prime example of this, multiple times being referred to by his beauty, but also his ineptitude in battle. The comparison to Achilles here is not on accident either. Achilles is described as the most beautiful, but as long as he sits by his hollow ships, abstaining from action, he is as useless as Nereus or Paris, and thus falls into the beautiful but pathetic character archetype. Shortly after this brief Achilles mention, we are transported back to mainland Greece, where Homer describes Thea and Hellas, ostensibly so he can mention Achilles' absence, and a few details about how he obtained Briseis. If this Achilles mention pertains to the current events of the war, Homer then reminds us of its beginnings. We travel northward from Achilles' homeland 
to Protesilaus' home in Philake. Protesilaus is an important character in the epic cycle. His name can be translated as first sending forth of the people, and he is called as such because of a prophecy the Greeks were told about sailing to Troy. An oracle had once stated that the first Greek to set foot on Trojan soil would die. In my favorite version of the myth, crafty Odysseus threw down his shield from the beached ship and landed on it, after which Protesilaus, thinking it was now safe, leapt down onto the bare ground and was subsequently slain by Hector, fulfilling the prophecy. His mention in the catalog of ships harkens back to beginnings, but also reminds the reader of the consequences of war. Protesilaus has left his new wife behind, and their house half finished. War has terrible consequences, of which both the Greeks and the Trojans are fully aware of, and which underscores the entire poem. If we look at the last three descriptions of heroes in the catalog, that of Nereus, Achilles, and Protesilaus, and ask ourselves the question, why in this order? What would we arrive at? The Nereus-Achilles comparison is apt. Protesilaus differs greatly from Achilles in this instance, though, as Achilles is currently useless, and what we are told of Protesilaus is his willingness to fight, and how his younger sibling Podarches replaces him as leader after he dies. This pair shadows the duo of Patroclus and Achilles later in the story, Patroclus being Protesilaus, eager to fight, and Podarches as Achilles, both younger than their counterpart, and now required to marshal the leaderless troops alone with the knowledge that their inaction has caused the death of a beloved comrade. This sort of mise on a beam is rife within the Iliad and Odyssey, and is one of the things that really surprised me when I started to read the text in detail. The catalogue of ships is chock full of them, and helps to explain its artistry and deliberate place within the poem. But let's continue, we haven't even met the Trojans yet. The next key hero that is mentioned is Philoctetes, the best archer among the Greeks. Philoctetes is another important character in the Trojan War. When he was young, he was gifted the bow of Heracles in gratitude for lighting the hero's funeral pyre when he wanted to die. But on his way to Troy, he was bit by a snake, and grievously wounded, and was apparently very stinky. The Greeks left him on the island of Lemnos and continued the war without him. In his description here of Philoctetes, Homer does mention that the Greeks would soon remember King Philoctetes, and this is because a prophecy later in the war said that they must bring the bow of Heracles and Philoctetes with them if they are ever to sack Troy. Of course, a reference to the end of the war, Homer is reminding us of its scope and progression. Next, the healers Podolarius and Machaon are mentioned, the latter of which will play a key role in bringing Achilles back into the fighting later in the story. There are a few more heroes to mention that tie into the larger mythological backstory, but I will leave the list here for now. We still have much to cover. We have our second invocation of the muse in this book, third overall in the story, as the poet asks the muse who was the best warrior and who had the best horses. Homer, throughout his tale, has a soft spot for horses. He likes to give them credit where credit is due. The greatest of the warriors at this moment is Telamonian Aias. The poet is quick to mention this is only so while Achilles rages by his tent. Otherwise, Achilles and his horses would take both top spots. Finally, though, we have the necessary backstory, and the army is ready to set out. Homer sends us along with the immortal messenger Iris to the Trojans, where Iris beseeches Hector to call all the leaders of the troops to arms, and have them marshal their own warriors to battle. 
This is the first time we meet the illustrious Hector, who is arguably the most important character in the poem. Hector is steadfast, brave, noble, but above all, pitiable. He is a highly relatable character from thousands of years ago, and somehow across all that time and space, we see a bit of ourselves in Hector. This initial scene with him does much to color his behavior the rest of the poem. Iris, the messenger of the gods, descends to warn the Trojans that the Achaeans are advancing. She takes the guise of Polites, son of King Priam, and Hector's half-brother. After, it reads that Hector recognized the voice of the goddess, and this is important. Only a few characters in the story can read the omens of gods. Those with divine blood seem to be able to easily, but most others are fooled by the gods' disguises. This scene lets us know where Hector stands in this regard. He is one of the wise and pious warriors who can discern gods from men. This sets a precedent for Hector throughout the poem, as he will be on the receiving end of several visits from the gods, but he won't always be this good at reading omens. And then we get another long list of heroes. Hooray! If the catalog of ships reveals what has already occurred, then the Trojan catalog of allies reveals much of what is to come in the poem. Achilles is mentioned twice by name in the catalog of Trojan allies, both times making reference to his Aristea. Aristea is an ancient Greek word meaning greatest work or greatest achievement, and the heroic concept of Aristea in epic is complex. And we're nearly coming to the end of this book, so I'll explain it later when we witness firsthand the Aristea of Diomedes. The list of Trojan allies also twice mentions their prophetic abilities both with regards to how some of them are keen in the art of prophecy, yet this doesn't help them whatsoever avoid their death, as heroes cannot escape their fates. Achilles' slaughter of these prophetic warriors harkens back to prophecies about his own death, which he will be equally unable to avoid. Strangely enough, the longest entry in this catalogue of Trojan allies is about Nastes. He gets a similar treatment to Nereus, being sung of for several lines, before being cut down poetically and eventually literally. Quote, Nastes and Ephimachos, splendid sons of Nomion, Nastes who came to war wearing gold like a girl. Fool, nor did this ward off miserable death. He was killed at the hands of Swiftwood Eacides in the river, and blazing Achilles attended to his gold. End quote. Quick note, Eacides is a patronymic for Achilles, it's much like saying the grandson of Iacus. Nastes is another Paris-type character, one of many who have their armor stripped by Achilles. Troy, throughout the poem and Greek history for that matter, was viewed as decadent in a lavish city. Nastes here symbolizes Troy itself, weak and decadent, being utterly destroyed by the Achaeans. The Trojan catalog ends with the introduction of Sarpedon and Glaucus, both important Trojan characters within the story. But Homer gives them few details, and instead lets their names speak for themselves. Sarpedon, we'll learn, is a son of Zeus, and Glaucus is his closest companion. Both come from far away, and have little personal stake in the war besides their pledge to help the Trojans. Sarpedon and Glaucus, individually and as a pair, foil Achilles and Patroclus. Later in the poem, Sarpedon will give a speech on the personal code by which he lives his life, code that he ultimately lives up to, unlike Achilles. There are several parallels between the Sarpedon-Glaucus pair and the Achilles-Patroclus pair, and I will touch on them as they occur naturally throughout the story. But that brings us to the end of the book. 
You've now finished one of the strangest books of the Iliad, so congrats for making it through. I hope I have shown some of the artistry and skill employed in this section of the poem, how Homer, using the medium of oral performance, must move the action along while at the same time explaining past events. In researching this episode, I garnered a new appreciation for the catalog of ships. It's not just a big list, but really contains the story of the Trojan War expertly woven throughout the text in references that are only revealed later. This technique is called mise en abîme, which is French for placed in the abyss. Its common usage refers to placing oneself between two mirrors and having your reflection repeated ad infinitum. In literature, it generally refers to subtext within a work that reflects or represents the whole piece. Prime examples are the play within a play in Shakespeare's Hamlet or the entirety of Christopher Nolan's Inception. We can see how through the present events of the narrative, that is, the listing of allies, Homer can showcase the beginning, middle, and end of the war while still moving things forward, and we find little representations of the whole story sprinkled throughout. Mise on a beam is also theorized as a memory-aiding technique for oral performances, as it would be easy to remember details if they reflect the larger story as a whole, kind of packaging it inside itself like Russian nesting dolls. All in all, it provides an enriching reading experience for us, and we feel like the events of the Iliad are stretched far ahead and behind the characters of the story. For myself, I love finding these details. It shows how much thought and intention must have gone into crafting the Iliad, regardless of how it was made. This story must have been worked on intensely, polished and critiqued, told and retold, listened to and spoken, until it shone with a brilliant quality. With that, I hope to see you on the next episode where we'll discuss Book 3 of the Iliad. Full of false hopes, we have the first meeting of the two armies and a possible conclusion to the war itself. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe wherever you listen, or follow me on Substack to get all the episodes and anything else I find interesting on the Homeric epics all for free. Until then, Rostai Akustoi Filoi. Filoi.